Welcome to another episode of Podcast The Gathering. Where we talk about... <laughs> As we do every week, we're going to talk about Magic The Gathering. See, I would love to talk about Magic The Gathering every week. <laughs> But it's not as much my nerd, or Dan's nerd obsession as it is mine. It used to be. Mm -hmm. So here's a little bit of background story for the readers who don't know this already. So we met in college because we were both on the staff of BYU's Small Press Science Fiction Magazine. And, you know, we're in a creative writing class together, started a writing group, blah, blah, blah. But our friend, Ethan Skarsdett, came to us one day and said, hey... We don't have a gaming section of this magazine. Can I start one? And I'm, we're like, sure. At that point, you and I were the two main editors. And so we're like, yeah, you do whatever you want. And so he went out to Blizzard at the time and he said, hi, I'm the gaming director for this college science fiction magazine. Can you send me a copy of Diablo 2 for review? And they did. And it blew our minds yeah. right out of our heads. Mm -hmm. And so we immediately jumped on this and that kicked off a website called Time Wasters Guide that lasted like seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. But one of the things somebody sent us, Wizards of the Coast sent us seventh edition boosters and stuff for Magic the Gathering. And it was something that you and I had played like before college. And all of a sudden we just got back into it big See, time. See, I'd been playing it all along. Had you? I mean, I had been playing it with <laughs> like Micah and my roommates oh, and okay. things at this time. I just didn't have any money. So I mm -hmm. couldn't get into it in a big way. When we got those cards, I already had a deck. I was the one who did. Oh, okay. But, you know, I had been able to spend a couple dollars here, a couple dollars there, and things like that. I even bought on my mission in Korea. I had one booster pack that I of bought on Korean my mission in Korean Magic, Magic cards. cards. One, one card is in my cube from that pack. <laughs> Korean Wrath of God still in my cube. So, That's yeah. fantastic. Uh, so I had never gotten out, mm -hmm. but I hadn't had the resources to really get into it. And I hadn't had really good play group. And so that moment really sucked us all back in. Oh yeah, because seventh edition and mm -hmm. then it was Odyssey block. Yep. yep, we got a little bit of the block before, but it was Odyssey that we really just jumped all in on. Just Another card nuts. in my cube opened up from the packs that we either bought or got somehow, then a foil upheaval, which mm -hmm. those who are Magic fans, that's in my cube still from those days. But yeah, we got back in and I got in really hardcore because I had always been yeah. really into this and this let me be into it even more. Well, and I was hardcore into it for a while. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I want to say maybe nine or so years ago mm -hmm. that I kind of got burned out. There were a couple sets in a row that just totally missed for me flavor wise. Right. Well, it was and Innistrad that missed for you. The it one was that Innistrad. everyone else loves. Yeah. You disliked because the horror tropes didn't land for you as a horror writer in ways mm -hmm. that they landed for the rest of us. That they worked super well yeah. for everybody else. And I kind of just got fed up and said, oh, this is dumb, and stopped playing and realized when I stopped playing that I suddenly had way more time and money than I used to have, which yeah. is why I have not gone out of my way to get back into it. But two weeks ago, my children... My boys, 9 and 12, found my old magic stuff and pulled it out. The dining room has been completely taken over by Magic the Gathering. They have really dived into it. Like, even the 9-year-old, I've been impressed with mm -hmm. not just his dedication to reading the cards, and he is not a kid who likes reading, but, like, his play is pretty good. 
Like, without being told to, he's smart enough to hold the instant spells back so that he can trick you with them once you overextend and things like that. It's been really great watching my kids get into the old hobby that I used to love and excel with it. That's that's very fun. And we kind of just today are going to talk about this game, but we're you don't have to be like a super hardcore into magic to yeah. appreciate this. We're going to talk just about like our experiences with games in general and why I stuck with magic and why Dan didn't in part <laughs> and what just kind of philosophy on just our lives as centered around games. As centered around games. I remember having a conversation with one of our friends several years ago. This was before I went to Germany. We were talking about games and he was here and he was trying to convince you to try some new card game that he Mm -hmm. had encountered and loved. And you said, no, you need to talk to Dan. Dan plays games. I play magic. Yep. That's one of the things like when you stopped being part of our magic gaming group and then came back later and talked about all the cool games you discovered, I realized that... Magic is one of these games that you can play casually. You totally Mm -hmm. can. But if you really get into it, like learning the new mechanics, each new magic set is kind of like a new game. And learning those mechanics and playing that, like that's what I want to do. So these days I get to play twice a month. And here's a... uh, an advantage of being a uh, best-selling uh, author with an entertainment company, we do it as team building. So the company Ooh. buys the cards, which is me, but uh-huh. still, the company yeah. buys the cards, and everyone in the company is invited if they want to. We have friends of the company can come. Your kids and you could come if you wanted to. Oh, and well, we draft you. the new set. Cool. Um, and then everybody gets to keep their cards, right? Because, you know, the company just bought the cards. And so mm-hmm. it's actually a tax write-off. The really big $100 tax write-off every few weeks to do team building exercises. And we just, you know, use the new set to do that. And so it's a lot of fun. Okay, so that conversation and that sentiment was expressed again like nine or ten years ago. Yep. And so I want to ask, after the proliferation of digital card games, like Hearthstone, which in many ways is a direct knockoff of Magic, Mm -hmm. have you gotten into those at all? So I tried them all. And I found I kind of had the same sort of thing, which was there's two things competing here. Mm -hmm. One is magic is my excuse to relax. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't need a lot of time off. I take enough. I take a couple hours every night. But magic is like a thing that gets me away from the computer. I spend time with friends. I get to kind of challenge myself against the better of those friends but just kind of hang out with the the others of those and magic being a game that has randomness on it you never know you know if the new player is going to stomp you which they can totally do Mm -hmm. and so the social aspect of it is enough that even magic's digital one that they released the newest one arena i played for a month or two and then just decided i'm not enjoying this Mm. it's becoming too much of an obsession right I find it very dangerous in my life to have any sort of game sort of thing that does not end. Yeah. When all of our roommates, you weren't one, but when I was living with Ben and everybody, and everybody got into Dark Age of Camelot, which was one of the MMOs back yeah. in the day, the pre-World Warcraft MMO scene had a lot more variety, let's just say, <laughs> than the post-World Warcraft. And they got into it, and I went and played, and I didn't enjoy it the way they did. And I think... Part of it was that my brain was saying, there's no end to this. You could keep going forever. 
personally, I think MMOs are monotonous also with that. The social aspect makes up for that. But mm-hmm. I want social aspect that pulls me away from a computer, that makes me go spend time with people, that I get to host these nights. And so I just have never logged back on even to the magic yeah. one. Not interested. It's just not a thing. It's not what the purpose of that is in my life. Yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense because one of the reasons that we are seeing such a massive boom of board game and card game right now and and role-playing games, it's an enormous renaissance in the industry. I think it's because we spend so much of our time online Uh that being able to sit down with people face-to-face, I mean, often that's the only chance you get to do that. Especially now that, you know, so much of our work has become digital and we're working from home or we're video conferencing and having that excuse to get away from all of that and just literally be four feet away from somebody breathing each other's air like filthy animals has its own value. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because magic, another aspect of it is tied to my career. I've told this story before. Sorry for those who saw it on my the stream I did with LSV a few weeks ago. But I went to, with you, a big tournament in the early 2000s. And it was a was pre-release. Was this a pre-release? Yes, back yeah. when the pre-releases were big. Now we, they're really We used small. to do those all the time. And I won a 64-person tournament, which is not a huge tournament. But, you know, 64 people. Mm-hmm. I was the best out of those 64. And that felt really good. I won some nice prizes. And something in my brain said, Ooh, you could do this for it. And I squashed it. I stepped on it. And I'm like, no, no, no. You've already taken one hobby and made it into a career. And you can do that, Brandon, exactly once. I'm really glad I'm a writer. I didn't lose something from writing by making that my career. But I knew I couldn't have two masters. Yeah. And magic needed to remain a thing that I would do for fun. And I never have gone to another tournament like that. We've done pre-releases since. Yeah, but they're small now. But they're small. In yeah. fact, I remember a couple years ago, I don't even remember what set it was. You and I went to a pre-release together uh-huh. at a game store out in like West Jordan or something mm-hmm. and played two-headed giant pre-release draft. We had such a bad deck. I remember that one. That we was almost one though. That was actually Innistrad. Was and it Innistrad? It was there, Innistrad. There was a card in the set yep. that proffered an alternate win condition. Laboratory Maniac. And I happened to get it in yep. my sealed pool. Mm-hmm. So we built a deck that basically I was doing that in the background while you were like fighting people off and everyone ganged up on us and we almost won. Yes, we did almost win. But it was, <laughs> so for those who know, it was a Lab Maniac combo deck that Dan built and I built a keep Dan alive while he tries to lab maniac combo. That's one of my favorite experiences. And that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And the difference between that and what happened with that other pre-release is that was you and me having fun with our fans. And there is an aspect to my career to Magic where when I was less popular than I am now and had more time surrounding conventions and surrounding signings mm-hmm. where I would go bring a deck and I would play with fans after Just the signing and things like that. And I really enjoyed that. And for a while, that was one of the main ways I interacted with my fans was go to conventions, be like, hey, we're holding a draft. Hey, I brought my deck. They actually had a cool 
one called Arch Enemy. You played this with yeah. me right before you got out, where it was a mini on one, and it was a very broken format. It never worked. But what it was really good for was going and saying, hey, you four fans who brought your decks, can you beat Brandon? And that was a lot of fun, being the, you know, the tyrannical maniac with the really powerful deck that everyone was ganging up to try to beat. It was some fun sort of experiences with fans that wasn't just sitting across the table from them signing their books. And it became an aspect of my career. Yeah. I have to tell you one story, though. Okay. Because back in the day, figuring out how to get magic cards was really hard for Dan and Brandon because Dan and Brandon did not have money. Yes. And we did lots of shenanigans like Time Waster's Guide, which mm -hmm. we did write the reviews and yeah. it did go I out mean, to- We did it and it, we were very successful and, yes. and publishers loved us. They did because it went to a college crowd, which is who they were all targeting. Yeah. But we milked that hardcore. <laughs> we would do things for our friend who worked at Wizards of the Coast, hoping that she would be able to go raid the product room and send us stuff. As authors, every time we're in Seattle, we'd be like, hey, we're authors. Do you maybe want to invite us to see just in case you want us to write for you? And then we'd go get product. Like we just uh -huh. could not afford product, right? Yeah. We just, we did whatever we could because there's a time in your life where you don't have money. And then there's a time in life when you're married and have kids and are new at your career where you really don't have money. And we went from one stage to that second stage. Very quick. We went from starving college student to, to starving brand new parent, like overnight. Yeah. And so I remember the time where my popularity was starting to take off, mm -hmm. where someone brought me a pack of magic cards. And this was right after you got out because it was the Eldrazi block. Yeah, that was the one right after yeah. Innistrad. And someone brought me a pack of cards at a signing. I'm like, wow, someone gave me free cards. And so I opened up the pack and I had them sign one of the cards. And I took a picture and tweeted it because, you know, Twitter was becoming mm -hmm. a thing and Facebook. And I'm like, hey, this person gave me a pack of cards. Like at the next signing... I was given somewhere around 46 packs of cards the very next signing. Oh, um, my word. Granted, some of those were a stack from one person. Yeah. But at least two dozen people brought me cards. And That's awesome. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and at the end of that tour, coming home with a suitcase full of cards, I realized I am too popular now to ask my fans for things yeah it stopped being the starving artist who can't afford these things getting them from fans because i had done that before people had brought me actually packs of cards this wasn't the first time i got a pack of cards this is the first time i was popular enough yeah that it kind of backfired on me to snowball right because at that point i could afford cards and it's not that i minded getting gifts and in the early parts of my career when i couldn't afford cards and i got them it was great but that turning point was when i said oh wait I can buy my own cards now. I should not. Yeah, should not be hustling these readers. Yes, and it wasn't a hustle. They were doing it willingly. Mm -hmm. That's four bucks, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I stopped tweeting about the packs of cards I was given and things like that because it felt bad that I was getting them. Now, you can still bring them to your other favorite authors who really love things. <laughs> getting gifts when you're in the newer part of your career, particularly things you just can't have the money to spend fr frivolously yourself. Is, yeah. is really nice. I'm not saying don't give authors things, but I had hit a point where I can have my yeah. company get you know several boxes of the new set, and, and I don't even notice 
the cost. Yeah. Right. Well, and ironically, it is often the really established big name authors who don't need gifts who are the ones that get them. Yeah. I remember I was on a book tour, one of these Dark Days Harper Teen book tours. It was me and April Lynn Pike and S.J. Kincaid, mm-hmm. who were all kind of, you know, April Lynn and I kind of mid-list. Shelley was brand new. And Veronica Roth. And it was just a night and day difference. 300 people in line for her at Barnes & Noble while the other three of us twiddled our thumbs. And she would leave every signing with a giant pile of posters and gifts and presents and brownies and things that people had brought her. And she feasibly can't take all of that with her, especially when it happens every night for a week-long tour. Mm-hmm. So I actually would get to the point where at every signing, we would mail a box home. Mm. Actually, people understand that they don't need to bring me gifts. I've kind of talked about it like this before. Yeah. But I've mentioned in like the Way of Kings or something in the acknowledgments that my wife really likes chocolate. And they're like, Brandon doesn't want, really want or need gifts anymore. <laughs> but Emily needs to be appreciated. And so I would go on signings and she would get a box of chocolates. Like a wow, like a like a box full of boxes of chocolates, yeah. basically at every stop, which was pretty <laughs> funny. But she now feels guilty about that, so you don't need to bring her boxes of chocolates either. We are doing just fine. But yeah, you know what I did for a while, and mm. you know haven't because I haven't done a real book tour in forever. I used to, you know, at a little one, we'd go to like a Barnes and Noble or an Indian, get mm-hmm. like ten people. We'd all go out to eat together. And I miss those days. I think you've talked about that on the podcast before because you've said, I think on this podcast, that people can corner you and say, hey, do you want to go out to dinner? Mm -hmm. And you'll take them up on it. I often will. And Um, I can't, right? Yeah. I am usually just too exhausted and the signings are ending too late and I would get too many invitations. There's been a couple of times, I remember at one where Mm -hmm. Howard was there, Howard Taylor. Okay who's our friend on writing excuses. Yep. Someone invited me out to dinner and I was just suspicious enough of what was going to happen that I'm like, hey, Howard, you want to go out to dinner with us? And made sure to bring someone along. Mm. We should talk back about games. We should talk about games. So I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to explain this, dear listeners. One of the Magic the Gathering things is they have internally what they call psychographics. There is Spike... And mm-hmm. Johnny and Timmy and Vorthos. So Vorthos, they, they and, added a fifth one. Vorthos and Melvin are different from the other three. I okay. think this is really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting even if you're not into magic. Well, and that's what so. I was thinking. This is something that I think applies to any game you play, and to yeah. some extent, I think can help explain why people like the media that they like. Yeah. So Spike, Timmy, and Johnny are a different category than Melvin and Vorthos. Okay. So And what these yeah. are, these are I guess play styles. Yes. They are labels put onto wide categories of player type. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for in the game? What gives you enjoyment from the yes. game? And I would say to some extent a lot of different media as well. Mm-hmm. So Spike plays the game because he wants to win. And Johnny plays the game because he wants to do something creative with it and express himself. And Timmy plays because Hulk smash. Great big monsters are fun. Huge, it's, huge yeah. splashy effects. It's big plays. Yeah. Showing off the cool thing. Just mm-hmm. likes a cool card. If you like a cool card because it's a big cool card, you are a Timmy. Yeah. Melvin and Vorthos are different. Vorthos likes the flavor. Mm-hmm. Vorthos is all about, I play this deck because 
it is all vampires. And I like this category of vampire with these flavor texts and this art. Yeah. Melvin is the person who enjoys the interactions of the mechanics of the set, the game part, the opposite of Vorthos. So Melvin, it doesn't matter to the the Melvin if it's a vampire or if it's a zombie or whatever. What Melvin cares about is, is this cool mechanic working really well with this cool mechanic? A great example is there's a mechanic in Magic that if you discard a card, you can do this cool thing with this card if you manage to discard it. Mm -hmm. And there's another mechanic that says, you know, pay this much and then discard the card and draw a card. It's meant so you can just get rid of bad cards in your hand and find the ones you need. Mm -hmm. And they put those two on the same card. And that's a Melvin card where the Melvin's like, oh, you can discard it with its own power and then do this other thing. And the mechanics work well together. I think I'm explaining that right. Yeah. Melvin's the one I understand the least. That, so. That's interesting. Melvin is not one I've heard before. Yeah. So it must be more recent than the mm-hmm. last yeah. nine years. And it's interesting because they've always been very careful when they talk about him to say Vorthos is different than the other three. Yes. And I always thought that was a meaningless distinction. Mm-hmm. But... Melvin is definitely different than the other ones. And it's right. hard for me to understand how Melvin would be different from Johnny. Well, see, the difference between Vorthos and Melvin and the others is Vorthos and Melvin don't need to play the game to enjoy it. Mm. A person who collects the cards because they like this set or something and doesn't ever play them, like you can't really be a Spike without playing. Yeah. You can't even really be a Johnny because you're showing other people your cool deck and a Timmy, but a Melvin is just like, wow, this game was designed really well. Look at the design aspects of this card. Let me explain to you. It's like how I explained how cool Speed Racer was to you. Uh That's a Melvin breakdown of Speed Racer. Look at the way it is doing this cool thing. Yes, and that is the Melvin psychographic. They don't have to play the game, and Vorthos doesn't either. Vorthos is like, let me tell you about this creature, like who she is and why she's so cool and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the reason that I group those with Johnny, and mm-hmm. I apologize because there's probably a lot of listeners out there who are like, wait, now you're, there's these five names and I don't understand yeah. what they all are. But I do think that they apply to a wide variety of other things. Mm-hmm. I've always described myself as very much a Johnny player. Yes. I like building weird decks that can do weird things. You don't care if you lose if your deck was different from everyone else's at the Yeah, table. if I'm able to get the weird combo mm-hmm. off, if I am able to say, look, you've never seen this interaction before. And there's a lot of Melvin tied up in that. I remember way back in the day, they had a card come out called Chronozoa, mm-hmm. which was this little just amoeba that could replicate itself. And the method by which it replicated itself was very gameable. And I have built a whole deck and it's terrible. It's never won a game. But if I'm able to get that replication engine going and just flood the board with amoebas then i'm very happy yeah this actually kind of goes back to like there's something about magic that is really cool in being the first collectible card game Mm -hmm. i'd be curious what your first experience was because i remember the moment like this is just how games work now but back then when my brother came with a deck and said we're going to play this game. I'm like, all right, deal out the cards. It's like, no, no, no. You bring your own deck and play them against each other. It's like Uno where you stack your deck and I stack my deck to do different things. And my brain just exploded, (laughs) right? Uh. Because I have a big Johnny side to me as well. Mm -hmm. The idea of, oh, I can build this thing that does something cool that is different from what the other person builds. And we can see 
whose philosophy on building this thing works better was just mind blowing to me. And it is what keeps me invested, right? What yeah. can I build with this? What can I do with this? It is why I play draft exclusively, which is a very limited way to play where you only get a certain number of cards and have to build your deck out of them because getting the stack of cards and saying, what can I build out of these mm -hmm. is more interesting to me now than what can I build period because I can afford any card that I want and yeah. I can outspend almost anyone who plays this game, I bet. Right. And once those scarcity strictures are gone, yes, then a lot of the fun of deck building disappears. Yeah. Not all of it. Yeah. But some of it does. But that was my first experience. That's what changed the way I interact with games forever was this I can build my thing and then try it out against mm -hmm. other people. Yeah. For me, it was you remember the love basket. I do remember the love basket. From Our mutual friend of ours. Listeners may remember our discussions of the love basket. Did we talk about the love basket? Yes, we did. Oh, wow. Mm. This is, I'm glad you remember. Freshman year of college, so before you and I had ever met, he was trying to introduce us to this brand new game. This would have been 95. Mm -hmm. So it was a couple years old at that point. And he said, hey, I want to introduce you to this game. And so he and Ben Olson and I sat down and mm -hmm. we're like, okay, how do you play? And he said, well, I've got several decks and kind of explained that bit and then said... Tell me your strategy, like your personality. How would you go about winning a battle? And I thought, well, I think maybe the best way would be to sit back and kind of accrue power and lurk and watch. And he's like, oh, okay, play the Thalid deck then, mm. which kind of where instantly I was, I was enthralled by this idea of collecting tokens and, you know, amassing this giant army. And that idea that your personality could be reflected into the game that it was not just this thing but you know how would you play it was going to be different than how everyone else played very similar to what you're talking mm -hmm. about i think it's really interesting that the market has kind of proven over time that there can be only one of these <laughs> because as soon as magic got big there were so many others that came out just dozens and dozens because that's how games work right a cool game happens yeah we're gonna get you know an fps is made well let's go i'll make some fps's except the way that magic and these types of games reinvent themselves every few months with new expansions that change the rules means that one is going to naturally rise to the top and i say that with an asterisk because there's actually i think three of them non-digital that survive but the other two are targeted at a different audience. They are Yu-Gi-Oh! And, uh, and, and Pokemon. Pokemon. Yeah. And Pokemon, it, yeah. We can't say the magic is the one and only Highlander because yeah. Pokemon is the single largest intellectual Except property in the world. Except people don't play Pokemon. People collect Pokemon and occasionally play it. I see kids play it a little. I think that the to collector audience... To be fair, it's, audience, it doesn't have the yeah. Friday Night Magic I think the collector audience far outweighs the player audience. I think Pokemon cards are collectibles you can play. And Magic is a game that is collectible. Mm -hmm. And Yu-Gi-Oh! is more on that side also. But I think that, you know, the market has proven you can't have another card game in the slot of Magic. Certainly um, not at that level. Yeah. I love what, for example, Fantasy Flight has done with what they call living card games. Right. Which is a different distribution And they all model. went this way, and it's really smart. And I yeah. think they've done a really smart job with it. Yeah. Netrunner. Yep. To this day, I think is probably my favorite collectible card game. Their version of Lord of the Rings was incredible. Mm. Yeah. I've actually really liked both of the big major Lord mm. of the Rings collectible card games, but 
but nowadays they've all either gone digital or they have gone a buy a box method. Not all mm-hmm. of them, but it's like, you know, you don't buy the booster packs in the same way that you do with Magic with a lot of these. You buy an expansion, which has all of the cards from the expansion yeah. in it. Three uh, copies or four copies yeah. of every card, so you get the whole set. Basically, everyone else is selling cubes, which is the best way to play Magic anyway. So it makes <laughs> sense that the others have gone this direction. And granted, there are ones that pop up now and then and try and things like that. I won't say that there's never a competitor Magic, but you know, go to your game store and look at what they're selling. They're going to have Magic cards, and they're going to have Pokemon cards. And the Pokemon mm-hmm. cards are going to come in big, splashy packages, usually. Yep. And the Magic... big foil yep. Pokemon of mm-hmm. the key one yep. that you get. And Magic is generally going to come in little booster packs that you draft with, or they've actually changed how that all works. They've done some interesting things lately. But I think that it's interesting that the market can support one of these, and then the digital card games are a different thing entirely. Yeah, and there is a just massive, ridiculous explosion of these digital mm-hmm. card games, in part because I think they are, in a digital format, a little easier to produce. A uh, lot you know, easier. Go, go on Steam yeah. and check out the free-to-play games in the store, and <laughs> a solid third of them are CCGs, mm-hmm. because you just commission a bunch of art, and throw them together hearthstone was kind of a miss for me but i know it's a huge one people love the league of legends one legends of runeterra mm-hmm. that's mine that's my digital game that i play all the time and is I that it. an auto chess or is it a? they uh, have an auto chess uh-huh. called team fight tactics i was gold one ranked in nice. team fight tactics two seasons ago nice but legends of runeterra is yeah, their magic up. it's their yeah. card game the difference though and the reason that i think that magic remains the big daddy of them even three decades later magic you can kind of do anything with mm-hmm. you can build a deck that can win in you know any number of different ways and take any number of different styles legends of runeterra and hearthstone and all those as much as i love them they're kind of based around you are this hero mm-hmm. and you are going to win the game as this hero doing the things this hero does yeah I would also say that it's a bit of a Yankees thing. Once you're on top, you have the resources to see what everyone else is doing, and you can adapt and shift more Mm -hmm. easily. And we've seen a lot of that in Magic recently, doing interesting different things. One of which is there's a Lord of the Rings set coming up. What? Yes. Lord of the Rings Magic? They licensed it? They have licensed Lord of the Rings to make a Magic set of Lord of the Rings. Are they trying to pull me back in? They're crying out loud. They're they're doing that. They're doing a Warhammer 40k thing. (laughs) The Warhammer 40k is not a full expansion. They're just going to be decks you can buy and you get all the cards. So kind of that model where it's not randomized. Mm -hmm. You you can go buy the four Warhammer 40k decks and play them against each other. And you can put them all in your other things, but I think... And they're all compatible. Everything's compatible compatible with everything. But the the Lord of the Rings one is a straight-up actual Lord of the Rings expansion set with all new cards. See, I have really mixed feelings about that. everybody does. Because on the one hand, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is similar to some of what they've done with Dungeons and Dragons, yes. for example. Dungeons and Dragons is the fifth edition, the most popular role-playing game in the history of the universe. Outsells, I think, everything else combined right now. And so lots of people are trying to put their rules mm-hmm. into it. Let's produce a campaign setting or something using D&D 5 as an mm-hmm. engine, yeah. which is basically what they're doing here with Warhammer and Lord of the Rings and Magic. Yep. But 
Dungeons and Dragons encourages and incentivizes a very specific play style, as does Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. You are not going to get the same play experience from Magic Lord of the Rings as you would from Fantasy Flight's Lord of the Rings or from Decipher's Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. And I think this is kind of the problem, like, when we talk about why Dan dropped out of Magic is Innistrad is a horror set. And mm-hmm. Dan's a horror guy. Magic did actually a really good job of adapting Magic's lore and themes and mechanics to a horror set. But it was not very horrific. When you yeah. had played other horror games that are built around the idea of horror. Mm-hmm. And so what Magic became was Magic the Gathering with a gothic horror veneer of vampires and werewolves. Not a game that is actually, you know, it's not a yeah. house on Haunted Hill or whatever it is game that you guys <laughs> uh, really liked or things yeah. like that. It didn't feel horrific, mm-hmm. even though it looked very horrific. Yes. Because it was a skin over the top of a trusted engine that did a very different kind of thing. Yep. And And so, so, yeah, now that they're doing this, uh part of me really loves that idea. I mean, it's basically what Lego did about 20 years ago and say, we're going to license everything. Yeah. And if you like a certain property, you can buy a Lego set of it. Yep. And now it sounds like magic is going the same direction, which, you know, clearly worked for Lego. Magic purists hate it because magic has been siloed with its narrative almost forever. Mm-hmm. Very quickly in Magic's history, some of their first expansions didn't. There's a Arabian Nights expansion that mm-hmm. is just straight up Arabian Nights. Some of the early yeah. ones, like you've got a card you can buy that has a picture of Einstein on it and stuff like that. And they very quickly decided, no, 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 we're going to just be our own world. Mm-hmm. And they started on like this one planet and did a whole bunch of things. And then they kind of said, we're going to just go do a bunch of different planets now and, yeah. and things like that. And they have only done that now for almost 30 years like 25 years of magic is i don't mm-hmm. know how long magic's been going so like five years less than the history of magic so like for 20 <laughs> years they've only been doing that and now they're doing all of these other things i love it right because mm-hmm. there's multiple reasons one is i just love to see magic interpret these things they just did a yeah. D set which is their kind of first experiment with this which makes sense they're owned by the same company and yeah. their D set is like how do you make a beholder in Magic the Gathering. And a lot of us who've been playing for a long time have thought about this and tried to make our own cards, which we did. Yeah, you and I used to do this a lot, actually. We uh, found a cool magic card graphic design program Mm -hmm. online, and we built hundreds of cards and kind of built our own cube to draft with our friends. And And we've adapted our own books. We've adapted Mm -hmm. Star Trek and all these other things into magic cards. It's a really fun Melvin thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. How can the mechanics of magic... How can I make them feel like it fits Star Trek or whatever? Yeah. And so being able to see how the you know best game designers in the business, because Magic can afford to hire all the best people, mm-hmm. approach how do we make D&D work as a Magic set is just really fun to me. I love that. Mm-hmm. I remember the last time we talked about doing our own Magic set and then mm-hmm. it never came together. I started doing StarCraft and trying to adapt, you know, Zerg and Protoss and Terrans into magic. And I love those kind of ideas. My question mm-hmm. about the D&D one, how does it feel? Because clearly yeah. I think that reproducing a Beholder as a magic card is one level of it. Yeah. But the other level is, can you make this feel like a dungeon crawl? So here's my favorite thing they've done. And these are all things that if you love magic, you will enjoy. It doesn't mm-hmm. replicate playing D&D. In magic, you have things that are spells. Um, mm-hmm. You have things that are creatures. And a lot of magic is centered around creatures. And 
the spells are often things like, you know, fireball or stuff like that. Well, a lot of the spells in this set, the name of them is something such as you encounter two goblins. It. <laughs> like that's and, the name of a card. That's the name of a card. Or you happen across a river or okay. you find the treasure chest and it has two options. And the goblins one, it's like you encounter two goblins, befriend them and you get two goblins. Or, you know, battle cry, and all your creatures get, like, a bonus, right? Mm -hmm. And so, or, you know, you happen across the river, you know, stuff like that. And so they've got all of these choose-your-own things to give a feel. Now, again, it's still just magic. Yeah. But that is a really fun way to just name your cards. So it's not changing necessarily Mm -hmm. the, uh, the style of the gameplay. Yes. But it is really leaning into that veneer. Yep, and giving you a lot of fun, floofy toys on top of it. And uh, one of the things they did is a lot of the creatures. Magic has all these keywords and stuff. They just named the abilities the creatures do the things from D anD. d So it's like yeah. you know the beholder is disintegration ray does this right, mm-hmm. and so you can attach the flavor to the mechanic yourself. And the term disintegration ray actually has no mechanical meaning in magic. It's yeah. written in italics, which means. It's not a keyword. It's not mm-hmm. a power. But it all of these cards say, this is what this thing can do. It can do a disintegration race. So you're like, oh, that's what that means. That's why when this yeah. beholder enters the battlefield, it gives target creature minus five, minus five. Which away. is what we used to do when we designed our yes. own cards. Mm-hmm. We used those italic keyword yep. fake things all the time because we're like, we got to get that flavor in there. And then the last thing they do is they have three dungeons you can go to that are rooms. And creatures will say, when this creature attacks, you may venture into the dungeon. And you have a little dungeon next to you, and you move your little piece into the next room, and it has an effect. And you can choose which rooms you go to, and you move your piece through the dungeon. And the rooms are things like, you know, it's like the pool of death. All creatures get, you know, this or something. Mm -hmm. Or you can choose instead to go to the pool of death to go to the spring of life and gain life or whatever. Yeah. So you just move your little guy through the dungeon. So That's so cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Clearly, we need to make another magic set at yes. some point. Yes, we we definitely do. Ours are really weird when we do them. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a podcast title for you? Ours are Ours really are weird. Really weird. <laughs> this has been uh, not writing excuses. Go away. Mm-hmm.